it's just a place where the, the fines and the, the law, it's very strict and they enforce them uh, really, really a lot. Now, what's amazing is that um, I think sometimes when we think of a city where the laws are enforced, um, you can think of it as being very oppressive, but it's not. It's a very safe place. It's a very um, nice place to be. Uh, initially, the laws were in place and they got everyone in line, but now it's part of the culture the people there live by the law. They, they delight in living by the law and they delight that their city is a safe place and they delight that their city is a clean place. And so a few things, I guess, that, that I, I learned from Singapore. Um, from Singapore as a place, and, and this, I don't know how to put this exactly, but, but it gave me a little glimpse of what the new earth is gonna be like. Okay, now that sounds really weird. Um, sometimes whenever I speak to people who are not Christians, and you know, you talk about heaven, they think of it's gonna be very boring. You know, it sounds boring. Everyone following the rules, everyone doing nice things. You know, it sounds very, very boring, they say. Well, having been to Singapore and having been in a society where people actually follow the laws, having been in a society where the government rule for the benefit of the people, having been in a society where there's peace and there's safety and there's almost no crime, I can tell you it's gonna be wonderful. Um, John was preaching a couple of weeks ago in the evening about you know your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and and I just kind of think to myself, and your kingdom come as well. And I just whenever I was in Singapore, I thought, Do you know what, the kingdom of God is just going to be incredible when it comes. Um, to walk on the streets safely, not afraid, um, to to have people who who want to live in peace and in harmony with one another. It was amazing. Um, yeah, that was another thing that the, the the Singapore has um, laws, which basically. Um, really encourage racial harmony. So you have people from all different countries, all different backgrounds, all different religions, and what's amazing is they all get on with one another. They all share the same space. They all live in harmony together. And again, it reminded me of the, the future that's coming. People from every nation, every and every tribe, and every language, all together in harmony, living under the rule of the king. So it was, it was a little, I don't know how I put it, yeah, it made me look forward to the new earth. Um, then what about the church in Singapore? Um, well, amazingly, in Singapore's history, it, was, it became independent in 1965, having been colonized by the British and then having kind of um, the Japanese try to, to get in. So in 1965, it became an independent state. And what was amazing was that even though the, the, the prime minister at that time was an atheist, um, he'd been to college in Cambridge and he had seen the work ethic of Christians and he'd seen the morals of Christians. And so that prime minister, he got Christians into the main power within the government. And even today, if you go to the, the government and look at the, the government in Singapore, it's shaped by Christians, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians who work hard, who've got good ethics, and who want the good for the country. And so in the country, there is freedom of religion. You can worship uh, whatever God you follow, and there's freedom for Christians to meet and to worship. Um, and there's a breadth of denominations, so you've got Presbyterians there, you'll be glad to know. Um, you've got Methodists, you've got uh, Evangelical Free Church. And one of the downsides is, I guess, you also have the prosperity gospel. And if you've ever heard of Joseph Prince, uh, he is a, a really mean person in the prosperity gospel teaching. His church is there, and I think he has 30,000 members. So it's a place where there's just diversity in, in the church and diversity amongst Christians. However, there is a real challenge for the church. Um, if you look at the map of Singapore, um, they're surrounded by uh, Muslim nations. So you've got Malaysia and you've got Indonesia, two very strong Muslim nations. 
And Singapore relies on these countries for everything, for food, for water, for absolutely everything. They, they rely on it coming through these countries. Uh, and so one of the things that Singapore have had to do as a government in order to kind of um, stay in good terms with these countries is they have passed a law where it's illegal for a, a Muslim to convert to Christianity. So, so the church are not allowed to evangelize Muslims. But more than that, because of this kind of harmonious thing, they don't want race wars, they don't want wars about religion, they want peace and harmony. It's actually illegal for any church or for any religion to proselytize. So you can't go out and share the gospel. You can't hand out tracts. You can't really go to where people are and openly share the gospel because that will be reported and there'll be a crackdown on it. So it's really interesting because in our context in Northern Ireland, as the church, we're saying we need to go. We need to get into the community. We need to get into where people are. We need to speak about Christ in our workplace. And in Singapore, it's the opposite. They're trying to work out how do we invite people in how do we get them in here to hear about Christ? How do we run something that, that draws people in to, to learn about Christ? So it's a big challenge. You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to um, proselytize. The, the other side of that is then that for the survival of the church and for the growth of the church, discipleship is really important. Um, there's a real emphasis. Every church you go to, there's a huge emphasis on parents discipling their children. There's a huge emphasis on parents taking responsibility to bring their kids up in the faith. And the reason that emphasis is there is because if they don't, um, the church could easily start to really decline in Singapore. So family discipleship and family relationships and passing on the faith within families, I just noticed that that was a real key thing that the Singapore churches are, are really doing. Um, yeah, and so I, I guess a few things that I learned um, or a few things that I was challenged by um, I did, I, I was going to show lots of my kind of tourist pictures. Um, basically, I had a class every day, nine to five, but after five, me and Aaron and Chris, who were here um, earlier on in the year, basically every night we went out and did something, saw a site, went to a tourist thing. So I was going to show you lots of my tourist pictures, but I thought I'd better show this one just to show that I was in class. And and there, there were um, a number, like there were lots of things that, that spoke to me. Um, but one of the things that our, our, our mentors did was they tried to speak to us as pastors, not just in the academic side, but as individuals. And uh, my mentor, Tim, he um, opened up a, a book by a man called Richard Baxter. He was a, a minister in the 1600s. And he writes a book called The Reformed Pastor. And Tim took us through why it's so important to take heed of ourselves as ministers, to look after our spiritual life, to be holy in our living, to be holy in what we say, to be holy in what we do. And there were a few things that he pointed out that just really, really uh, challenged me and also just really made me aware. And he said, um, one of the things Baxter says is ministers need to take heed of themselves because the enemy will tempt them more than others. The enemy wants ministers to fall because it's a very public spectacle. And so we need to take care of ourselves, to take heed of ourselves because the tempter will ply you with more than temptations than other men, is what Baxter said. And then another one, he said, take heed to yourselves because there are many eyes upon you and there will be many to observe your falls. You cannot miscarry, but the world will ring of it. As a minister, if a minister falls, especially in this day and age of the internet, of social media, of all that stuff, if a minister falls publicly or if a minister falls into grievous sin, it's everywhere. You can't, you can't fall as a minister like that without having a damaging effect. 
It says, take heed to yourselves, for your sins have more heinous effects than other men. So the other idea is that if you as a minister fall into sin, all those people that you've led, all those people that you've preached to, all those people that, that you've invested in, well, suddenly they will question their own salvation or they'll question their own faith or they'll just question if they can really believe anything you've ever said. And then another one, take heed to yourselves, and this is the most important one in my eyes, for the honor of your Lord and Master and of his holy truth and ways doth lie more on you than other men. For a minister to fall into grievous sin, for a minister to, to really blow it, for a minister to fall, um, just brings such dishonor to Jesus. And we know that, we've seen it. So I was just personally challenged to take heed of myself, to watch my life and my doctrine closely, but, but my life, and to really think about that. Um, in terms of then the church, um, one of the brilliant things about being there was we went and we spent time with churches who are in this environment of not being allowed to reach out with the gospel. We went and met with church leaders who are who do ministry in this technologically advanced rich city, um, but in, a, in restrictions. And uh, there were a number of things I learned, but one of the things that really struck me was how I think we need to be in Northern Ireland a lot more intentional about taking people on the journey from unbelief to, to mature Christians. Um, one of the churches I went to, it was amazing. They said, here's what we do for pre-believers. So it's not non-Christians, they're pre-believers. Here are the things that we do regularly to make sure that we're introducing people to Jesus. And then when they come to faith, it was like, then they had the next thing set up. Here's what we do for new Christians. So when someone moves from being a pre-believer to a believer, here's what we do with them. Here's the things we teach them. Here's how we invest in them. And then once we've kind of given them a foundation, here's how then we, we help them to become mature Christians. <laughs> and here are the things we teach them and here's the things we do to, to make them become mature Christians. And then we've got Christians who are mature and they're now taking leadership in the church. So here's what we do to invest in them. <laughs> And then what we want is we want these leaders and these mature Christians to invest in, in the new believers and in the pre-believers. So here's how we train them to do steps one and two. And I was just thinking, you know, this just makes so much sense. <laughs> but yet I think we just kind of don't really think in that way. So um, Singapore as a country, it's really strategic. It's very planned out. Everything's planned. Um, one of the ministers told me that what's happening in Singapore today was planned 50 years ago. And he wasn't joking. They just plan ahead and they plan and they plan and they strategize. So the thing for the church I think we probably need to think a little bit more closely about is how we take people from on that journey and how we intentionally disciple them uh, in, in those ways. Now, um, the, the main, one of the main things then uh, over in Singapore was that I had to present what I was hoping to do for my thesis project, which is the next part of the work. And to be honest, the thesis project is the bit that really counts towards your doctorate. All the other stuff is preparatory, kind of helping you to get skills and to learn. Um, but the thesis project is the bit that, that really counts. And um, oh, I don't want to jinx myself, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm hoping to graduate in May 24 because that's when my friends Aaron and Chris are graduating. It would be nice to go out and see them and, and do that together. But the thesis project, I'm going to do it around the area of church revitalization. Um, as you're aware, in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, a lot of churches are um, really declining very, very heavily. A lot of churches are closing. 
And whenever you look at the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, they're doing a number of things. Um, they're, they're linking churches together. So they're linking often weaker churches together and saying, okay, now you're together. That gives you a few no more numbers. And now hopefully you can survive for a bit longer. So that's one thing they're doing. Um, one thing they're also doing is dissolution. So they're, they're closing churches and saying, listen, we're really sorry, but you're not viable anymore. And we encourage you to go to these churches in your area. So they're, they're dissolving churches. Another thing then that's new, and to be honest, it's quite exciting, is that doing, and they haven't called it this, but I, I would call it a church adoption. Um, some churches which are declining are being adopted by larger churches. And the larger church is then kind of caring for the smaller church and trying to help it to rebuild. So in Bangor, Bangor West, and Kukuli, that's the new relationship there. So there's this idea of adopting a, a weaker church and trying to help them revitalize. But most churches, um, most churches, what's happening is that they're getting given a, a seven-year reviewable tenure. Now, we know what that's like, okay? Five years we got, and, but most churches now are getting seven years because five years is too stressful for the minister, apparently, so there we go. Uh, <laughs> so, so, we, so most churches are being given a seven-year reviewable tenure. Now, very often, um, whenever a church has a seven-year reviewable tenure, the minister coming into that is often straight out of college, it's often, you know, they've just done their assistantship and it's their first charge. Uh, we know what that's like too, don't we? Yeah. Uh, so it's their first charge. And, and what's happening, however, is that whenever um, guys come out and they go into a situation like that, very often what they've been taught at the college doesn't really equip them and train them for what they need to do in that situation. Um, whenever you're in the college, it's very good training. It's excellent training, brilliant theological training. But basically, you're being trained to go into a healthy church. You're being trained to go into somewhere and preach and pray and pastor. And those things are really good. And those things are really important. And those things are the job of a minister. However, if you're going into a church, which looks like it's going to close in five or seven years, just preaching and praying and pastoring probably isn't going to lead to revitalization. And so what's happened is that a lot of guys have come out and saying, we, we just don't know what to do. We're not sure what to focus on. We don't really know what we're meant to be doing here. And I've had those conversations because people have come to me and said, what did you do at Ravenhill? And I say, well, a number of things. But, uh, but, but it's interesting because there's this, there's this kind of need of knowing what to do. How do we do this? So, so what I'm hoping with my um, thesis project is to discover factors which contribute to successful church revitalization within the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. And so um, what I'm going to do, first of all, is I'm going to write a biblical foundation for church revitalization. Where does this idea come from? And well, we've seen it in the seven letters to Revelation, don't we? Jesus says, here's your problem. Here's what you need to do. So there's this idea that we have to do stuff other than just pastor, preach, and pray for, for churches to be revitalized. You've also got Paul on his second missionary journey. He's not going that time to start new churches. He's going to strengthen the churches to help them to become stronger and more vibrant. So the biblical basis will do that. Then we'll look at the theological basis, but then the main part of the research comes after the literature review. So I'm gonna read, I think I have about 40 books all on church revitalization. And from those books, I'm going to try to come up with a list of things that the books say are really important for church revitalization. So I'm hoping to have a list of about 100 things, maybe more. Um, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, contact maybe 10 or 12 ministers whose churches have been revitalized, who've had growth, who've had better health, who are no longer under reviewable tenure. 
And the first part of the research is really for them to identify which of these 100 things they did in their five or seven years. So that's going to give us a basis of things they've done. Then having done that, I'm now going to interview the ministers individually, and we're going to kind of tease out exactly what that looked like. You know, so you say that you improved your Sunday morning service. You say that you changed that. What did you change? How did you change it? What were the results? What were the effects? Let's talk about that. So we're going to go a little bit deeper and try to really understand what they did in practice. And then the third part of the research is that um, the minister and the elders in all of those churches will have a very specific list of the things they did with a little summary of what they did. And then they'll be asked to identify whether they thought those things were absolutely essential quite important or not very important for the revitalization of their church. And then we get to the results. So the results is hopefully going to show us things that are essential for revitalization from these churches, things that are important and things that are unique. Um, and the hope is then that on the back of that, and this isn't part of the thesis project, but my mentor said I, I should probably do this, is really to write a guidebook um, for ministers in the Presbyterian church to, to give them some ideas and thoughts on what to focus on when it comes to being in a church for five or seven years reviewable tenure. So there's a fair wee bit of work to do, um, but, and, and, but I'm, I'm really excited and I think, um, I think it could really help us uh, in Northern Ireland and maybe beyond to, to help with, with church revitalization. So um, yeah, so that's, that's the plan that was approved and now the work needs to start. So I'd ask you just to, to pray for me in that. Um, I tend to do my demon work just whenever I get spare moments, um, but I might need to be a little bit more disciplined than that. So um, yeah, just, just pray for me as I work all that out and pray that that, that would be something that's really helpful um, for the church uh, on the whole. Um, I'm going to be over for tea and coffee and desserts. If you want to ask anything about it, you want to ask anything about Singapore, anything about my experience, feel free to. And I just want to reiterate what I, I said before I went away. Thank you so much uh, to you as a congregation for giving me the time to go. I appreciate that so much. Uh, for giving me the space to do my work, but also for, for supporting me financially and for sending me. Um, I could never have afforded it. I could never have afforded to go. Uh, only with your support have I been able to. So I just want to thank you so much. Um, for doing that. Well, let's take a moment to pray for Singapore and then we'll sing it to our Saviour, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, tonight we are so thankful that the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. And Lord, we thank you that it's bearing fruit in Singapore. And Father, tonight we want to pray for Singapore. We recognize, Lord, tonight that you are the sovereign ruler over the earth. And we acknowledge tonight your authority over the city-state. We thank you for the many blessings, Lord, that you have bestowed upon Singapore. We thank you for its prosperity, its stability, and its current peace. Father, tonight we want to pray for the leaders of Singapore, for the president and prime minister, for the members of parliament and the civil servants. We ask, Lord, that you would grant them wisdom, discernment, and a servant's heart, that they may make decisions that affect the lives of the people of Singapore in very positive ways. And Lord, we pray too for the Christians who are in government. May they seek from your word, your guidance, and follow your will for the good of all. Father, we also lift up tonight the people of Singapore, from the young to the old, from all walks of life and all ethnic and religious backgrounds. We pray, Lord, that you would bless them with good health, with security, with peace, and with prosperity. And we ask that you would help them to love and to care for one another, and to work together for the common good of the country. 
Lord, may they be inspired to live lives of integrity and service, following in the footsteps of your Son, our Savior Christ. And Lord, tonight we want to pray too for the churches in Singapore. We pray, Lord, that they would be a beacon of hope and light in the community. May they be filled with your Holy Spirit and may their members be united in love and purpose. We ask that you would use them to reach out to those who are lost, hurting and in need. And Lord, give them opportunities to share the good news of your salvation and love. And finally, Lord, tonight we want to pray for the future of Singapore. We ask that you would guide and direct the nation, that it may continue to prosper and thrive, and that its people may enjoy the fruits of their labor. May Singapore be a place where justice, peace, and righteousness prevail, and where your name is glorified in all that is said and all that is done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just another, sorry, one more thing I forgot to say. Um, on Sunday, uh, we got to go to church in Singapore, and we were going to worship, obviously, but we were also going to kind of assess the church a little bit, you know, to see what the welcome is like, to see all that stuff. And my friend Aaron and I went to a church, and first of all, uh, we didn't know where to go, so that was a bit awkward, and there were no signs, and no one told us, but we finally found our way into the church. And we felt quite nervous. And I just want to encourage you, whenever people come to church for the first time, they feel nervous. We felt nervous, and we were Christians, so we walked in, and we were the only two white people in the church. So we felt like outsiders. We felt like real outsiders there. Anyway, we sat down, and we sat down strategically. We sat right beside the aisle where everyone was coming in. We sat right on the end, and not one person spoke to us. Not one person acknowledged us. At the end of the service, we hung around, you know, like two Egypts. But we hung around. We sat there for ages. And uh, the minister, who I actually have two personal connections with and was looking forward to making them, he looked at us. And then he went and he walked away. And I just want to encourage you. I am so encouraged how welcoming we are here and how people feel at home here. But I want to encourage you, don't ever lose this. Um, the newcomer, the first-time person here, they're always the most important person in the room. So I just want to encourage you, always have your eye out for those who are new. Always have your eye out for those who, who you don't know yet and, and just acknowledge them, welcome them, say hello and make them feel welcome here because our experience was not a positive one.